This is Movie Maker Interviews. I'm Eric Stoyer. Today on the show, I talk to Lydia Dean Pilcher and Jenny Moeller. They're the co-directors of the new film, Radium Girls. In the 1920s, radium was marketed as a miracle product, something that could be used to solve any number of life's problems, health-related and otherwise. Of course, as the world later discovered, radium could be dangerous, toxic, and even lethal. Radium Girls is inspired by the true story of young women during that era who worked in factories applying glow-in-the-dark paint made of radium to the faces of watch dials. Eventually, many of these women became extremely sick, and dozens of them died of radium poisoning. Radium Girls is in theaters now. You can also buy a virtual ticket to watch it online at the websites of several independent theaters around the country. So when did you first hear the story of these women? So I was working as an archival researcher back in 2012, and I was looking into sources on the Manhattan Project and developing the atomic bomb. When I stumbled across this very cryptic reference that said, we all remembered the tragic dial painters of World War I. And they're talking about health and radioactivity, and I had no idea what they were talking about. So I Googled it and found myself on the Wikipedia page called The Radium Girls. And that was the beginning. How did this work become something that only women did? Well, it it actually, the radium dial painting was something that was used during World War I for for the soldiers, for their glow-in-the-dark watches. And it actually grew out of um, the China painting industry, which was something women were also prominently or predominantly doing. And it was just, it was considered delicate work that was well-suited for female workers. Throughout the film, but definitely in the beginning, especially you use a lot of archival material and a score that, that in combination make the era that you're setting up seem really exciting and even inspiring. And obviously you're doing that to lead into a story that is quite harrowing. Uh, but I wonder when I was watching if you had a lot of affinity for the 1920s and, and what about it appeals to you? Well, Ginny, I think you should talk a little bit about, you know, where you you and Brittany uh, were working when you came up with the idea of the screenplay and how that environment kind of helped build the visual style. Sure. So uh, Brittany Shaw, who wrote the screenplay, um, we wrote the screenplay together. She and I were both working at a small documentary company in Brooklyn doing archival research. And I was working on a show about the Manhattan Project and she was working on a show about the past hundred years of civil rights. And both of us would come across these moments from the 1920s in pop culture that we had never heard about before when we would think about the Gatsby of the 20s and the things we were we were coming into contact with had to do with um, well, a lot of political turmoil, um, things like Mount Rushmore when in context has, has a different story because the 20s was a time of um, actually a lot of white supremacy and and building Mount Rushmore in the way that that it was situated um, on Native American lands was not outside of that context. And so I could, I mean, I could go for, <laughs> I could go for hours about the, the historical nuances of the 1920s, but I think really it was, it was so much more than we had ever known. And the images that we came into context with gave such a fuller picture. And then it, and then of course it made us think, you know, what would it be like to be a teenage girl in this time? And that's, that's really when things got exciting. Yeah, I think that worked really well. Um, and a lot, a lot of that footage is 
setting up that era and, and like you say, giving context to being a teenager or a young woman in that in that time. Um, what, what was the connection that you wanted to make between the characters in the film and the women and just women in the wider context of the United States in the 20s? Well, the story takes place in Orange, New Jersey, and part of this world building was to really let the audience into the world that the Radium Girls were living in, even if they weren't fully connected to it themselves yet. But there was a Consumers League um, office in New Jersey, and even though there were radium factories all around, in New Jersey, health department workers had made some reports to this um, woman, Catherine Riley, in the in the Consumers League, and she started to try to look a little closer and investigate why workers were getting sick. Why were they all women? Why was it only women who worked at this factory? And that is when um, the idea of exhuming a body um, became part of the conversation because the, the girls who were getting sick had been diagnosed by a company doctor. The diagnosis was syphilis. And the only way to really know was to exhume and to check the bones. And when that happened, which was part of the true story, um, radiation poisoning was detected, syphilis was not. So that was the, that was the corporate cover-up that kind of blew off the, the roof. The, the reality is, is that Catherine Wiley was very connected to a lot of other activist women who at that time had not so long ago gotten the right to vote were, had been you know, fighting for that for a long time, were really involved in the world and what the change was needed in the realm of industrialization, regulation, child labor, toxic chemicals. They were all over it already. And so it was really these women um, who saw the Radium Girls story, realized that, they were, that these girls were actually serious about standing up and suing the corporation, and they got behind them. And they sort of put the media engine behind them, lifted it up to a national landscape. And it really is that women supporting women theme that made the Radium Girls something that we could actually excavate today. <laughs> uh, what's, what's it like to co-direct a film? Well, on a, on a very small film, it's a wonderful thing <laughs> because we we've we shot in about 20 days. We were upstate New York. We have, you know, it was a, it was a very modest budget. So we were, um, you know, we were all hands on deck and, uh, you know, it was, you know, it was great working together because Jenny had lived with the script and the characters for so long. And I'm a veteran, you know, producer and I had, um, I had boatloads of craft and we just put our, we just put our minds and imaginations and rolled up our sleeves together and did it. Jenny, do you have any thoughts on that? The, uh, it seems to be something that I see a little bit more of than, than you used to. I think that directing and, and as I've experienced it firsthand is it's such a, um, there's so much happening and to have a collaborator in the trenches with you and to be able to be at the monitor together and then say, Oh, we're, <laughs> we're shooting these two things at the same time, because this is the only day we're at this location. And to have, have that sort of organic collaboration where you can come together and then go apart. And you know that you're working from a vision that is, that is collaborative. I think that it is a, you know, a beautiful way to make a movie. A film is, is no small mountain <laughs> to have somebody, you know, to have to to have that type of partnership, I think can can really take the creative vision to the next level. 
Yeah, if I can ask you to expand on that just a little bit. Are you talking about working from a collaborative vision and then there's like maybe one of you that directs one scene and then another person directs another scene? Or are you, are you directing each scene collaboratively? I, I think it was it was really um, much more fluid than that. And I, I want to just also say that, you know, Ginny and Brittany Shaw had written this beautiful screenplay. And when I, I had been looking for something because that was related to the environment, because it's that's a area that I'm very, very passionately committed to and wanted to merge that with my storytelling career. So we we went into a development process together. So we had spent several years just really working through the themes, doing deeper and deeper research, but really preserving the idea of seeing it through these teenage girls' eyes. Um, but I think, um, I, th I think that it's a, you know, it's interesting because people, I think now are starting to talk about, you know, female styles versus male styles. And it really, there really, really is kind of a difference and some, I guess, in corporations, they call it transformational. Um, but I, I think that the collaboration and the, it's, you're sort of weaving, you're weaving like a tapestry together. Um, that's how I would describe it. What about you, Jenny? Yeah, I, I think that it wasn't, it wasn't regimented. I think the collaboration, and again, as an indie film, there were always 10,000 things to be doing. And sometimes we were, we were directing the same scene together. Sometimes we were working with different departments. Sometimes, you know, sometimes we just got to enjoy and, and sit and watch a beautiful performance unfold and say, wow. <laughs> and, um, and I think that, I think having, having two of us in that role meant that meant that there was there was an expansiveness about about the way we could direct the film because of it. I believe the majority of the production was also staffed by women. Uh, is that correct? Pretty much. Um, pretty much. It was all it was all produced, written, directed, um, composer, costume design, production design, script supervisor. Um, we did have a wonderful French DP, Matthew Planfalset, who had um, actually come from France to America to shoot independent films. And we were the first one that he got to shoot. And it felt like a real, it felt like a real, wow, we were in the right place at the right time. Um, he was very, um, uh, he was very passionate about the story. He was really passionate about it. And, and he had a, a strong emotional camera, which we were drawn to. And uh, so yeah, so I, I, I think I think I would say it all led with a female sensibility, even even from the men who are involved. How do you think having so many women in the various roles of, of, of creating the film, how do you think that influenced the film that you made? That's a really interesting question. And it actually makes me think of that David Foster Wallace speech where he gave where, where he, he talks about what's water. You know, the fish are swimming by and the older fish say, how's the water? And they say, what's what's water and that to me and and to me it's it's um that's what the experience was it was it wasn't like this is a female set versus this is another way to do the story it was just like the it was just the the group of people who made the film and and people who are brilliant and and sensitive and worked I mean I can't even tell you the hours that everyone pulled on that film you know, I, I know from my experience of working on sets for a long time that, you know, everybody has some, uh, has a contribution to make on the set. 
and people are in a position where they're offering things um, and it comes from their experience. It comes from their perspective. So if, you know, if you look at Bessie and Joe's room, you really feel the femaleness of that room and you can, and you can really, you can really tell in the details that some, someone informs that her journals, her diaries, the choices of things that are on the wall. And it's not that, you know, it's not that everything is, you know, is feminine because it's female. It's, it, you know, there's many dimensions to um, femaleness. So it's, it's almost hard to articulate, but I am, I am kind of aware, you know, whether it's the prop person, whether it's the, you know, the wardrobe production assistant, everybody has a role in terms of like making a kind of a choice or a decision or options of choices that then get chosen and selected from on the day. So it, it's extremely relevant, the experience that people bring to, um, to the set. As, uh, as Bessie becomes more conscious of the, the wrong that's being done to her and the other, other women, um, she devotes herself to making people aware of this travesty, and it's definitely not easy. Uh, as you developed her as a, as a character for the film, did you think a lot about what drives activists, uh, especially people who are fighting against these seemingly insurmountable s- systemic problems? I think when people feel a moral imperative... Um, about their purpose in life, that that inspires activism. And that moral imperative comes from a lot of different places. But a lot of times it is when you're confronted with the decision to do something that's bigger than yourself, can you do it? And an activist would say yes. Um, But it's not, you know, it's not easy. And we've, we've been talking a lot, especially in this um, time of releasing the movie, that um, it's, it's, it's easy to sort of stand up and express yourself in a, in a room or in a living room or at a dinner or whatever. It's, it's, the next step is going out into the street and taking, you know, taking a sign and holding it up. But what does it really take to be a whistleblower? Because that's essentially what Bessie Cavallo did and the other radio girls did. And that, that takes another level of courage. What are some of the, the sources that you drew from aesthetically? Are there, are there period films that come to mind that you were influenced by? We looked at, um, one of the things that, that we looked at with the production designer was interior design magazines from the time. And we looked at how bold so many of the colors were and really having this conversation across the team of, of you know, this is not a dusty black and white story. This, you know, they were living it in real color and, and bringing that to life. And then with the cinematography, we really were so excited about this idea of natural light. And that's something that Matthew just, I mean, it's like, it's, it's watching him work with natural light is, it's, it's just incredible. And so, so bringing those to light, and then I think it actually is in keeping with the larger idea of that these are real teenage girls that this is happening to. They are not pictures in a history book. And how do we bring it to life in a way that that really uncovers that experience. So you, you mentioned you know, design magazines or catalogs, and, and, and then the Wikipedia page that you landed on when you first discovered. What, what other sources of research did you do? I'm sure you did a did a lot of reading and thinking about this stuff. 
The, the Library of Congress actually has all of the legal documents. They have a collection there. And so time there, scanning images, reading transcripts, that was really profound. There, um, in terms of the world building, and um, we were scouring archival footage. Many, some of it, it ended up in the film and a lot of it informed the, the larger world that we were thinking about, especially in terms of, of the activists of the time. There actually are journals um, and letters from different Radium Girls that I was going through my emails um, last week, just remembering that we had reached out to some of the historical societies in the other cities where there were Radium factories and the LaSalle County um, Historical Society in uh, Illinois was near the Ottawa factory, which actually there's a Radium Girl statue in Ottawa now, but um, they had letters written by sick workers so that you were really getting the first person account. And Bessie's character, the one played by Joey King was very inspired by Catherine Schaub, who was, you know, when you read her diaries, you could tell that she had this kind of sparkle, this kind of energy dynamic sort of, you know, wild imagination. And it felt like the character, you know, that Joey King could play. And I think it was really Catherine's diaries that inspired you to write Bessie in that way. What's it like to have a, a film out in a pandemic? Well, we're, you know, we've gone through, um, you know, we were supposed to release in April and we were shut down. Cuomo shut the theaters down in New York the week before our release. So our trailers were in the theaters, but we hadn't opened. And so we, we closed and we, you know, had no idea when we'd be able to think about opening again. It was really during the summer that it felt like we should start to think about trying to do it and do it before the election. And there has been this model of cinema that I call the pandemic cinema model, um, which I was watching very closely, whereby indie films, indie distributors were using the networks that art house theaters had to release their films by sharing ticket prices. So we, I was very interested in that model and it we've expanded it to include wide ranges of affinity groups. And it reminds me a little bit about the time when crowdfunding first came into existence because you were really building a community, the potential was exponential. And so as we release tomorrow, we will be in you know about 30 theaters across the country. Some can open because they're able to with social distancing and others are going to be virtual cinema partners. And we have the platform um, that we're working with um, on, and everybody that is a virtual partner can come on and um, their community can buy tickets and they're able to sort of share in the ticket price with us. So we have groups like the National Association of Science Teachers, the International Society of Women Engineers, um, you know, different climate groups, different uh, science groups because we're a Sloan funded film. And uh, it's really exciting to, um, it's really exciting to bring all these people together. Jenny and I are doing Q and A's to talk to them. And um, that's the social impact part, which is really why I think, you know, it's, it's one of the big reasons why I do what I do. I've talked to a few filmmakers recently who said that this actually feels like a good time for indie film because you're not competing with Marvel blockbusters. It, that, that's just sort of out of the picture altogether. Uh, would you agree? 
I think that's true. I, I, I think that's true. And I think that I think that we have had a real glut of content that, you know, has been building for a long time. So for a while, that glut was working its way through the pipeline. I think now, sadly, it's really impacting, impacting the economy of theaters, you know, their whole existence. But, it, you know, Eric, we're in a disruption right now. It's a disruption that has probably needed to happen for some time. And I think that this idea of the virtual cinema for indies is really great. And it really does allow filmmakers to connect directly with their audiences. And it's, a, it's an amazing opportunity. I, I think, you know, for all the things that the pandemic has taken away from us, this has been a gift. What do you hope people take away from this story? I hope that people will see Radium Girls and not stop there. I hope they will have conversations about it. I hope they will dig into the history if they like history or talk about the long-term environmental impacts that this case had. I hope that I hope that it will inspire people to say, what would I do if I were in their shoes? And then say, in what ways am I in those shoes now with something else? And, and what am I willing to do? How far am I willing to go? I was just gonna say that, you know, telling stories about history in movies is, it's a very interesting proposition because if it's a historical story. So the audience knows what's gonna happen at the end. But the real experience is putting yourself in the shoes of the characters who are experiencing the story and really living what they were facing and thinking about how they were feeling, how they made decisions. And then even though in, at the time in the Rainium Girl story, I mean, Bessie Cavallo may not have felt that she had won the victory that she wanted to win. She just didn't know yet, you know, how, how pervasive, you know, the impact of the Rainium Girl story was. And we were um, contacted by some scientists at EPA when we first, first you know, went into the festival mode with the film, who told us that they still use the Radium Girls case today in arguing cases of, around toxic, reg, toxic chemical regulation. So it's, it's, um, it's interesting. I, ju I just wish the Radium Girls could know that they had that much impact. Lydia Pilcher and Jenny Moeller, thank you very much. I really appreciate talking to you. Thank you, Eric. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to Movie Maker Interviews. Check us out at moviemaker.com where we post stories every day about films and filmmaking and filmmakers. And that's a great place to subscribe to Movie Maker's print magazine. You can follow us on social at, at moviemakermag. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And um, if you've got feedback about the show or you've got a guest idea, send me a note at eric at moviemaker.com. We'll be back soon with another episode of Movie Maker Interviews, and we hope you'll be there to join us. Until then, take care of yourselves.